21. For several months now, we've been considering this book, and we're coming closer to the end. Now, as I've said many times before, the book of Revelation consists of seven cycles, wherein the time frame between Jesus' first and second coming is described. And uh, the seventh and final cycle is chapters 20, 21, and 22. And so in these seven cycles, they each start with Jesus' first coming and end with his second coming. And so we saw back in chapter 20, the beginning of the seventh cycle, it starts with the binding of Satan that took place through Jesus' historical uh, crucifixion and resurrection, his first coming. And the end, uh, uh, chapter 20 ends with Jesus' second coming and the judgment of all mankind. And then chapters 21 and 2 describe for us in beautiful, uh, rich imagery the new heavens and the new earth. Or better yet, heaven in its consummation. So in chapters 21 and 22, let me put it very simply and very plainly. We have a beautiful description of heaven. Now, very quickly, before I, I read the first eight verses, because we're only going to look at the first part of chapter 21 tonight, and then, God willing, we'll finish it next week. Let me just remind you of the distinction between the intermediate state and the consummated state. Okay, so by the intermediate state is meant that place that saints go when they die as they await the consummated state. And we refer to the intermediate state as heaven with a small, smaller case H, perhaps we can say. It is heaven in the sense that it's a place of bliss. It's a place where the perfected souls or spirits of saints go to be with the Lord as they await that consummation. So dead saints, those who died in Jesus, as we've seen over and again, are right now in heaven. It's okay to speak of that place as heaven. The Bible does. But it's heaven with a small H, because heaven with a capital H, as we'll see tonight, takes place on the renovated earth. And that takes place when Jesus comes back with the saints, and he destroys his enemies, as we've seen back in chapter 20. And then he renovates this earth and he prepares it for a place where he and his bride will dwell together for all eternity. Now let me just say one last thing by way of introduction before we get started. Though I've said and we've seen very clearly over these months that there is a sevenfold cycle throughout the book of Revelation that describes the time frame between Jesus' first and second comings, that doesn't deny the fact that there's also something of, um, of a climax as we come to the end of the book. There's, there's repetition, right? There's a sevenfold repetition throughout the book of Revelation. But there's also this beautiful progression. Because now we come in chapters 21 and 22 to the pinnacle. Uh, to the mountain top of the book of Revelation. And surely, brethren, 
These are some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Now, I do have one last thing to say that I forgot by way of introduction. And that is basically what we find in chapter 21 and 2 is a repeat of what we find back in Isaiah chapters 65 and 66. The last couple chapters of Isaiah talk about the new heavens and the new earth and basically say the same thing that we're going to find here. Or put another way, John is leaning upon Isaiah's imagery as found especially in the last two chapters of his prophecy. And we won't have the time to go back and do that just, for, just because we're going to have a lot to, uh, to consider in the first eight verses uh, this, uh, this evening. So I want to read it and then we'll come back and consider it. Now, I want to expound these, these eight verses of Revelation 21 under this theme of the new heaven and earth. The new heaven and earth. And I want to suggest that there's at least three things in this passage in relation to the new heaven and earth. First, we'll see in verse 1, the nature of the new heaven and earth. Secondly, the residence of the new heaven and earth. That's verse 2 and verse 8. And then everything in the middle, the privileges of the new heaven and earth. The nature of it, the residence of it, and then the privileges of it. By the way, the text does say new heaven and new earth. I have a tendency to say new heavens and new earth, but either way, you know what I mean, all right? Notice verse one. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now this is the church. The city of God, the bride of Jesus. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Brother, these are all Old Testament texts that John is stringing together. Verse 7. He who overcomes shall, oh, I'm sorry, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what we find in these first eight verses in seed form is then expounded or expanded upon in verses 9 to the end of the book. Not only to the end of 21, but through 22. So there's going to be a lot of repetition with regards to what we see tonight as what we'll see next week and then the next couple weeks as we finish out this book. 
Now, I've already said that chapter 20 ended with Christ's return after the thousand years. Remember, the thousand years is just a description, again, of that time frame between his first and second comings. The thousand years, that's what we're in right now, is that time when the saints who've died in Jesus are reigning with him in heaven. And Satan is bound, that is, the kingdom is advancing throughout the nations. That's the whole point of the binding, if you remember, from last week. So we're now right in the midst of the, of the thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, according to Revelation 20, Jesus comes back. There's one single universal resurrection and the judgment of mankind. And now John, as it were, having spoken about that judgment and that lake of fire at the end of 20, is painting for us this tremendous picture of the new heavens, new heaven and earth. So verses 1 to 8 of our chapter describe the new heaven and new earth. Whereas verse 9 to 27, the second half of chapter 21, describe the city within the new heaven and earth. Now that city is mentioned, isn't it, in, cha- in, the, in verses 1 to 8. But that's the, that's the sole theme of verse 9 and following. He's going to uh, give a detailed description of this blessed city. And by the way, the um, measurements are figurative. It's just to say that this is a, a large city. It, it, it's a multitude no man can number. And it, and, and it constitutes the elect. Old and New Testaments, as we'll see, God willing, next week. All right, so notice in the first place the nature of the new heaven and earth. Verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You know that, especially in the book of Isaiah, but all throughout the Bible, we have mention made of two creations. And with regards to those two creations, there's two atoms. So there's creation the first and the first atom. And then there's creation the second and the last atom. Or the second man. And these two creations are the two ages. There's this age. And then there's the age to come. And yet as we're going to see. These two ages overlap. Because the new creation. Has already broken into the old creation. As we'll see in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you know that the Bible speaks of regeneration. When we become Christians. As a new creation. So there's a sense in which Christians are already experiencing the joys of the age to come or of this new creation that John speaks about. But when he says the first earth, uh, uh, the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, he's talking about the fallen, or the original creation in its fallen condition. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first heaven and the first earth. The first heaven and the first earth refers to the original creation in its fallen condition, in its fallen state. Now, most Christians have believed, and I suggest rightly so, that the new heavens and earth will be on this earth renovated. So it's not in total a different earth, as much as it's a renovated earth. 
Now, I can prove that from many texts, but let me uh, prove it from this uh, illustration or this analogy. When I, when I was regenerated in 1994, I became a new creation. But I didn't become an entirely different person. I was radically renovated. I was still Mike Waters. I still put ketchup on my eggs. I still put hot sauce on my chicken. I was still Mike Waters. But I was a new Mike Waters. And you know that this um, this radical change that takes place here in this text between the old and new creations, Jesus actually calls it a regeneration. That's how he puts it. In Matthew 19, 26, he speaks about how in the regeneration. So just like there was a regeneration in my soul in January of 1994, wherein the old Mike Waters passed away and a new one took his place. When Jesus comes back and he destroys this earth with fire, it's like the old one is radically renovated into a new one. Now, brother, and I do believe in part one reason why Christians have a hard time, if they're to be honest, anticipating heaven because they've been wrongly led to believe that heaven in the final state is going to take place on some clouds. I don't think any Christian would admit that, but I think if you were to ask them, not a few of them have been led to believe that. That we're going to sit on a cloud with harps and gowns, and that's going to be the extent of our eternity. Well, brother, if that was the extent of our eternity, that's how God would have it, and we would be there worshiping together Jesus for all eternity, that would be obviously tremendous. But you have to think of of heaven with a capital H, mind you. This is the consummation, the consummated heaven as being on earth. So all the things that Adam enjoyed pre-fall, man will enjoy in the consummated state in a better degree and in a better place. Because mind you, the paradise, in fact, even as we'll go further here, well, chapter 21 describes heaven as a new heavens and earth, right? But chapter 22 especially describes it as a paradise restored. Everything that was in the first paradise, you'll find it in the first five or six verses of chapter 22. But here's the thing. The paradise of the consummated state is superior to the paradise of the first creation because there's no serpent in this paradise, nor is there the possibility of sinning as there was in that paradise. To put it more uh, perhaps theological, the state, the consummated paradise or heaven will be immutable. there's, There's no possibility of change. There's no serpent. There's... There's no possibility of change. Adam was created perfect, yet mutable. Right? He was changeable. And, and, and he was created perfect, and yet with the possibility of sinning. And how do we know that? He sinned. But our, you know, here's the beautiful, the beautiful thing about it. 
As Christians right now, actually, our state is more secure than Adam's was in the original creation. Right now, we're more sure because we've already, as Christians, as it were, by the Holy Spirit, we are enjoying the first fruits of our inheritance to come. And what is our inheritance? Well, what is it? Verse uh, 7 speaks about it as what? The new heavens and earth. Remember, Jesus said the meek shall inherit what? The earth. Not this earth, but this earth regenerated. This earth radically renovated. So, brethren, whatever heaven will be like in its consummated form, it's going to be more similar to that paradise that Adam knew than dissimilar. Now, there's important differences, as I've already pointed out. Beaky put it like this. When someone is born again, he becomes a new person. But he does not become another person. And that's the same with the renovated or regenerated earth. All right. Uh, now, before I go on to the next point and, and consider the residents of this new heaven and earth, let me just very quickly uh, uh, suggest a few thoughts on the last phrase of verse 21. Also, there was no more sea. Now, let me just say uh, that this is one of those statements that I cannot be dogmatic about with regards to its meaning. It's possible that it's literal, that there will not be any literal sea in the new heavens and earth. I mean, if you think about it, there wasn't a sea in the original creation. The seas came as a result of the flood when God took all the waters and he put them into big uh, bodies of water. It's possible that this is all that John means. But I, I think probably, because we've seen the high symbolism of this book, that by sea, he's not talking about a literal sea as much as he's using sea there to mean tribulation and turbulence. I mean, just think about it. He's presently stranded or exiled on an island surrounded by the sea. And I think maybe he's thinking about, and the Jews did have a tent, and I don't blame them. I have a, 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 a phobia or a fear of, 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 that, of, of deep water like that. For me, there's nothing worse than the thought of drowning in the ocean. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like flying. I don't mind flying. I don't like flying, period. But I doubly hate flying when you have to go over the water. Because there's nothing worse for me to think about than to be stranded in some water with miles of nothing but darkness beneath me with all of those sharks and whales and who knows what else is down there. And all you have in the airplane is that little square seat that says you can use it as a floating device. I need shark repellent. I want like... <laughs> Grenades and guns and the whole thing. I think this is probably what John means by there's no more sea. There's no more sea in the sense there's no more dread. There's no more fear. There's no more tribulation. There's no more turbulence. This is what Dr. Beeky says. There was no more sea. 
As a prisoner on an island, John constantly heard the sound of crashing waves, the cry of wild birds in the sky, and the roar of thunder. The sea formed the walls of his prison. It separated him from everybody he loved in Christ. In the distance, he could see mountains on the mainland. He knew that the people he loved in the seven churches of Asia were there. But the sea prevented him from leaving the island. Now God says to him, John, in the new age, there will be no more sea for you. There will be no more goodbyes, no more separations, no more broken fellowship. You will no longer suffer isolation, persecution, pain, or suffering for the sake of Christ. It will be a world where there will be none of this, where you will dwell with me, or as John saw it, there will be no more sea. But you can't be dogmatic on that one. It is going to be a new heaven to new earth. Oh, let me just say also, too, it's possible, because there is a, a reference to water coming up. That is just to say that the water there is going to be different. It's going to be a spiritual water, and that is going to satisfy the souls of all the residents of the new heavens and earth. We're going to see that here at the end of verse 6. But either way, it's a new heavens and new earth. It's not an altogether different heaven and earth, but it's a renovated heaven and earth. Now, who's going to be there? The rest. You know, the irony of it is, if you go back in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms, where it talks about Jerusalem, how the psalmist loved Jerusalem, and how God loved Jerusalem. It was talking about literal Jerusalem. There was a, a literal city that was populated by people, but it was always the people in the city that God loved. When David spoke about his love and his joy of Jerusalem, do you think he's talking about the bricks and the rocks and the stones that made up the city? It was always talking about the people within the city. Brother, for the life of me, I don't understand how people can come to a text like this and impose such a wooden interpretation upon the city. Whatever this city is, it's a bride. And if you go down to verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then do you know what he does? He takes them on a mount, up on a mountain and shows him what? The city. Brethren, obviously the city here is one and the same with the lamb's bride or wife. And who's that? Well, it's the elect, as we'll see next week. It's the elect. Because the foundation stones have the names of the 12 tribes or the 12 apostles and the gates, the um, 12 tribes of Israel, which mean that there's one people of God from comprised of Old and New Testament saints. Now also, or furthermore, if you remember, the other six or eight times that we saw this phrase, Holy City, or New Jerusalem, or Heavenly Jerusalem, in the book of Revelation, it always, always, every single time, referred to God's people. So why would we come to this text and somehow think it means something other than God's people? Well, if there's a new heaven and new earth, then it only makes sense there's a new Jerusalem. There's a new people of God. And this people of God, as I've said, is nothing more than the Lamb's wife or the church of Jesus Christ. So we have two beautiful imageries that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation and we find it all throughout the epistles that describe God's people. 
They are a holy city and a bride adorned for her husband. She's altogether fair. Now they're described further down in verse 7 as overcomers. He who overcomes shall inherit. Inherit. See, there's an inheritance. New covenant Christians have an inheritance. Did the Old, did the Old Testament people of God have an inheritance? Yes. It was the physical land of Canaan. Does the New Covenant Christian have an inheritance? Yes. It's the new heaven and earth. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. What's the all things? Well, it's all the things associated with the new heaven and earth that's found in this chapter and the next one. All things. Everything that's within this new heaven and new earth is theirs by way of inheritance. They get the inheritance because they're sons and daughters. If you go back at the end of 7, uh, I will be his God and he shall be my son. And a good father gives his children an inheritance. And brethren, what is it that we inherit? I've already said it. Remember John, uh, uh, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, the meek shall what? Inherit the earth, the land. And all things within it. That's what's being described here. So this phrase, overcomer, as you know, it, um, it really means conquer. To overcome is to conquer. Every Christian is an overcomer or conqueror by faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no Christian who isn't an overcomer. There's no Christian who isn't more than conquerors. I, I meant to bring it. Remember, I've been quoting from William Hendrickson's commentary on Revelation, the best little commentary, the best commentary period on Revelation. And what does he call it? More than conquerors. More than conquerors. Of course, that phrase comes from Romans eight thirty-seven. Yet in all these things, that is, all these trials, all these tribulations, as they're facing. Uh, all day long, like lambs, the slaughter. And remember, he describes all these things that come against us. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But you know, you find this phrase, overcomer, uh, oftentimes in the, in, the, uh, in, in the book that Mr. Beitzel is expounding to us, First John. Uh, for example, chapter 2, 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. For for you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Who's the them? False teachers. And then you have, of course, the classic text, 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. All of his children overcome the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Thus Christians, every Christian, overcomes the wicked one, trials, false teachers, and this wicked and evil world. But in contrast to overcomers, in verse 7, you have the wicked in verse 8. But the cowardly and unbelieving. Now I find it interesting that John puts those two first. 
Because these are kind of the cause of the rest. And he puts cowardly, I think, to contrast it with the more than conquerors of verse 7. Brother, we're all cowards by nature. It's because we're believers that we're overcomers. Right? We, we just saw that. It's our faith in Christ. Christ is the overcomer, and it's our union with him that enables us to overcome. Brethren, if he has overcome his enemies, and he has persevered into heaven, then of necessity his body or his bride shall also overcome and make their entrance into heaven. All right, so we find not only positively who will be there, uh, verse 2, a holy city, a bride, overcomers, but who won't be there, verse 8, the cowardly, unbelieving, etc. And then you have something of a contrast, don't you, between the bliss of the new heaven and earth and that fire that burns with uh, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. You have um, also, I think, something of a contrast between our inheritance and their part. They, they, the wicked have a part too. They have a portion. That's a lot of them. We have our inheritance and they have theirs, as it were. And they're obviously very, very different. Not everybody goes to heaven, friend. Not everybody goes to heaven. This text tells us there will be the cowardly and the unbelieving, the immoral, who will have their part in the lake of fire. Well, then that brings me to the third and and perhaps my favorite point, and that is the privileges of the new heaven and earth. And that's right in the middle Verses 3 to 7. And there's really basically two fundamental privileges of the new heaven and earth. Okay, And one's uh, positive, one's negative. In other words, there's going to be some things there, that's positive, and other things absent, that's negative. Um, let me just tell you, in, in, uh, in summary, there's the absence of the curse... That's negative, verse 4. And then there's the presence of our God. And that's the rest of the verses. That's positive. And you know what? You find both of those brought together, don't you? In in chapter 22, look at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. That's the exact same thing as we'll see here in a minute. That's found back in verse 4 of our chapter. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So God is there. Brother, what makes... What makes heaven heaven? What makes this new heaven and earth so wonderful? Well, there's two things that make it wonderful. There's the absence of the curse, and then there's the presence of our God. All right, know those. Let's look at those in closing in turn. First, the absence of the curse. Verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, this is a quotation, again, from Isaiah. Now, I I said that John has Isaiah, uh, the last two chapters of Isaiah 65 and 6, largely in mind. But 
all through Isaiah, you have imagery and language that John is using. Let me, let me just show you this very quickly. Look back to chapter 25, for example. Remember, John builds his revelation upon the back of the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's, that's true, in fact, of all the New Testament letters. You can hardly understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And how do you un- understand rightly the old, but with the brighter light of the new? And notice what uh, we read here in Isaiah 25, verse 6. And in this mountain, okay, this mountain. Now, in the context, it's talking about Mount Zion, where the people of God, where the city of Jerusalem dwelt. But notice how John picks up upon this and applies it to the new heavens and earth. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice, choice pieces, a feast of wines on lees, of fat things full of marrow, and well-refined wines on the lees. Those are all good things, by the way. See how, see how this, this place, heaven, capital H, is described in positive terms. There's all these wonderful things there. These are, these are good things. Now notice, there's removal of something, verse 7. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. Brethren, that's the curse. And the veil that spread over all nations. Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. I, I think that's what it means when it says and there'll be, no, there'll be no sea there. For the Lord has spoken. Brother, this is a beautiful description of heaven. There's going to be the presence of good things. And there's going to be the absence of bad things. He's going to destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering. It's like it's kind of like there's this veil or this, this covering over this present earth. It's called the fall and the, and the curse that came as the result of it. And, and John describes it in our text as, as consisting of death, pain, and sorrow. Brother, we can't even, it's really almost impossible, isn't it, to, isn't it, to envision a place, to envision a new heaven and earth where these things are no more. Because that's all we know. We've been born into this world uh, that is cursed and has a veil over it. The way I look at it, it's like it's a fog. You know how sometimes you might go out early in the morning Given, uh, depending upon the uh, weather, there might be a, a heavy fog in the air and you can't see and you have to keep turning on your windshield wipers and turning them back off and you can't really see where you're going. That's kind of like this world. There's, there's this veil that just, that just oppresses us. Brethren, what a, what a sad, sorrowful, and dying world this is. I mean, we can multiply the examples. We don't need to. We all know what it's like to endure the pain associated with bereavement. We all know what it's like to feel the pain of persecution, being shunned and hated and mocked, physical sickness, relation, perhaps I can say relational pain. A wayward child. 
Brother, nothing hurts the heart of a parent like that. I guarantee you. Not even death. It's like a prolonged death when your child's in an unconverted state. This is what this world is. It's a world of death and sorrow and pain. And that's why it's a world, it's a world of tears, brethren, isn't it? It's a world of tears. But the text says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This world, in its present fallen, wicked, evil, sorrowful condition, will be no more. Listen to Simon Kistemaker. He said, like a mother who bends down and tenderly wipes away the tears from the eyes of her weeping child, so the Lord God stoops down to dry the tear-filled eyes of his children. Ever since the fall into sin, mankind has shed countless tears so that this present world indeed can be called a veil of tears. But it's not just the removal of the curse, the absence of the curse. There's the presence, verse 3 especially, of our God. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, this, this verse, verse 3, is just stuffed full with Old Testament Texts, allusions, and imageries. And so before I go any further, let me quickly point out that behind this verse, and also down into verse 7, there's not only the imagery of a new creation, but a new covenant. Brethren, this passage is, well, all passage in, in the Bible, all passages in the Bible are covenantal. Our Bibles are divided into two covenants. There's the old and the new. And everything the old had, it was typical and temporal. And it has its fulfillment in the new. Was there a Jerusalem in the old? There's a Jerusalem in the new. Was there an old creation in which the old covenant functioned? Yes, there's a new creation. Was there a tabernacle in the old? Well, brethren, there's a tabernacle in the new. In fact, these phrases, these statements, like at the end of verse 3, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And then down in verse 7, I will be his God and he shall be my son. You might know that these are actually quotations from the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. You can go there and look at it. Genesis 17.3, what is the promise that God makes to Abraham? I'll be your God and you'll be my people. What is the heart of the covenant that God made with David? 2 Samuel 7.14, I'll be your father and you'll be my son. But wait a minute, how is God, how is John quoting these texts and applying it to the new covenant that we have in Jesus? But because those, those were shadows of the new and better covenant to come. Was God 
Was, was God the God of Old Testament Israel? Yes. It doesn't mean that they were all saved. In, 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 in most situations and time frames and eras, the majority wasn't saved. But he was their God. He was their God by way of covenant. They, they were a unique and privileged nation. They alone, with regards to all the nations of the world, had God dwelling in their midst. He dwelt in their midst. How? In the tabernacle. And then, when they entered the promised land, the earth uh, that was inherited, their inheritance, and they built a temple, he dwelt there in the temple. And so now we have the fulfillment of all those types and shadows. There's a new land, and there's a new tabernacle, and there's a new Jerusalem, and there's God's special covenant presence in the midst of his people, brethren. This is what makes heaven, heaven. By the way, if you go back in your mind to, to that great new covenant prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 33. I'm going to make a new covenant with my people, put my law in their heart. That's the Ten Commandments, all ten of them, not nine of them. I'm going to put my law in their heart. And then what does it say at the end of verse 33? And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Brethren, that's the essence of God's covenant love. So God is going to be uniquely in heaven. Just as he was uniquely among his Old Testament people in the tabernacle temple. And just as he's uniquely present in the midst of his new covenant temple on the Lord's day. Remember what Jesus said, where two or three have gathered in my name. That means in my house on my day. To conduct my business. In that context, it was church discipline. But it includes formal worship. And now we find that there's coming a time, brethren, in heaven when that special presence that is realized in the assembly of God's people is going to cover, it's going to cover the new heavens and new earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's what we find, don't we, in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 7. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Now let me ask you this in closing. How is it that God is going to be our God in heaven. That he isn't now. Or. How are we going to be his people in heaven. That we aren't now. Well there's a sense in which. He already is our God. And we are already his people. But that which we know now about those realities are but known in part. We, we know his covenant love and we serve him with our hearts very dimly and feebly. It's but a foretaste, brethren, of what will happen in the new heaven and earth when we will know his love in a way we have not yet known it. He will be our God. There'll be no lingering doubts, no questions, nothing that will hinder the sense and awareness of his love and his smile. And there'll be nothing in us that will hinder us being his people and loving him with all of our hearts and serving him with all of our souls. Now, I've already made allusion to that text in 2 Corinthians 5.17 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In other words, the glories and the joys and the privileges of the age to come have already broken into, in part, this present age. Or to put it another way, do you remember when the Hebrews were on the edge of the land of Canaan and they wanted to send spies in to check it out and they sent some spies in and they brought back these big giant grapes and all of the fruit and the milk of the land and they tasted it and said, wow, this is a tremendous place. Well, brethren, that's exactly what we have now by the Holy Spirit. He, as it were, goes into that promised land and he brings back some of its fruit and some of its milk and he enables us to taste of it at least in some measure. But brethren, what is that in comparison to what we will know when this heaven and earth will pass away and the new heaven and earth will take its place? Then, then brethren, and only then will we know God is our God. And only then will we be his people in the perfect and fullest sense. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the great promise that there's a new heaven and earth. And we're thankful, Father, that this world with all of its sorrow and all of its tears and all of its pain, there is joy. There is, there is real Christian gladness. And that we do get to taste at least in some measure of the, of the glories of, of the world to come. But Father, make us hungry. Make us thirsty. Help us, O oh Father, anticipate this land where death, sorrow, and tears shall be no more. And where our God shall be our God. And we shall be his people. Grant it for Jesus' sake. And then we pray now, Father, as we come to break into our groups to pray, we ask that you'd help us. We pray first that you be with us this Lord's Day to come. We pray that you would help us as we survey the little short book of Philemon in our Sunday school class, as we would anticipate the joys of seeing baptized our young sister into the church. And then as we would fellowship around the table, with food and then at your table with the elements. We pray your blessing upon the activities, Father, of the Lord's day past and that which we anticipate, we pray. And now meet with us, O God. Send your spirit that he might fill our hearts, that we might cry out to you with humble, believing prayers for the sake and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.